Welcome to the Creative Careers in Medicine podcast with your host, Dr. Dana Pung, and myself, Dr. Elise Hutt. Join us as we talk to inspiring clinicians who have redefined their careers. Hi, Professor George Rubin. Welcome to the Creative Careers in Medicine podcast. We're so glad to have you join us today. Thanks, Elise. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you. To begin with, I just want to take us back before you even started studying medicine and ask you what drew you to medicine in the first place? I think it's fair to say that it was a visit to the biology labs at University of New South Wales. My girlfriend at the time, her father was a professor of biology at the university. He showed me around and just interested me in biology. I'd been at a school where it was largely about science, maths, and languages. So uh, biology just appealed to me. I had no idea much about it, but it appealed to me. And I thought, what can I do for a career that involves doing some biology? So medicine was one of the few available options at the time. And when you actually started studying medicine when you were in university, did you feel like the degree was fulfilling your expectations? Was it helping you explore that interest in biology? Yes, it did. In fact, in the first year, I found psychology the most attractive of the subjects then. The first-year studies were pretty much like what I've been doing at school, chemistry, physics, that sort of stuff. But the biology, the psychology, the social sciences were particularly attractive at the time, so that really did interest me. But I was incredibly naive at the time, and this was all new stuff, so I was just happy to go forward studying what was offered at the time. I'll talk more about some of the public health stuff later as we go on. Yeah, sounds good. So... Going through medical school, it sounded like you were enjoying the studies. What did you actually think you were going to do with the medical degree when you were kind of approaching your final years? Yeah, yeah. Like I said, I was super naive. I just concentrated on the studies I was doing. I was a bit of a SWAT, I'd have to say. And I concentrated mainly on exams and on getting a good post afterwards. But I was interested more in medicine than surgery. I could already see early times medicine was more appealing, psychiatry a little bit, maybe, but it was mainly about medicine that interested me at the time. But I didn't have any notion about what I'd do once I graduated. Like I say, I was super naive, pathetically so as I look back now. What did that actually mean for your junior years? When you were a junior doctor, what sort of terms did you choose or try to get your hands on? Oh, no, look, I really enjoyed the time as a junior doctor. I had terrific time with burning the candles at both ends. Enjoyed all the clinical placements. Didn't matter what I did. It was always interesting and fun. A lot of extracurricular activities at the time, I'd have to say. But my junior years were cut somewhat short because after the initial first year, myself and another colleague were accelerated to become medical registrars and skipping our senior residency year, I don't know what you're calling it now, the second year, like clinical rotations. And in retrospect, I missed out on a lot of varied clinical experiences. And it also thrust me into having to be in a position where I was supervising my peers, people I'd gone and graduated with. I was then supervising them at nighttime and on weekends when I would be the most senior medical person, as it turned out then in only my second year. So I had to really get serious very quickly so I couldn't continue on the social trajectory that I was on at the time. 
I hope that makes sense. Yeah, that sounds like a big jump from intern to medical registrar. Super big jump. And in retrospect, it was not a good move. Of course, we're always delighted to, you know, full of yourself at the time and thought of highly at that stage. But I don't think in retrospect, it was a particularly good move. So how did that move come about? I don't know. I guess they just liked the work that uh, my colleague and I were doing as junior residents. And there must have been some difficulty getting other people to be medical registrars at the time. It was at a large teaching hospital in Sydney. I wouldn't have thought that was that much of a problem, but I guess they were very happy with the work that we were doing and had done well in exams and all that sort of stuff. So it meant that in my second year, I had to spend a lot of time at nighttime studying so that I could get ahead and try and catch up on the missed year. I don't think I would have been a very good medical registrar when I was PGY2. So it's very impressive. I would think it would be frankly dangerous because how experienced can you be in your second year and yet basically the most senior medical person on the wards in a 600-bed-plus major teaching hospital? I think in retrospect that would never happen nowadays, I would hope. You alluded a bit to some extracurricular activities that you were doing in your PGY1 before you got thrust into the world of med regging. Yeah, What sort of things were you involved with? I was chasing women. I was playing in a band at the time and just all sorts of silly stuff like that until I had to get serious. And yeah, nothing I'm particularly proud of. Very extracurricular. Yeah, it was just a young guy. Just, In fact, I was pretty young at the time. That was the short part of my life where I was younger than most other people because I'd been in school. I'm in the December birthday, so I was always the youngest in class going through school and going through university and everything. I guess that added to my naivete and I guess it was also getting out of studying through medical school and then being on call and then when you're off, tried to socialise as much as possible and catch up on lost opportunities while at school. I imagine a lot of JMOs have a similar experience to that. Yeah, we all look out to have a good time when we're young, hopefully. This may lead into my next question, Uh which was around the fact that when I was doing some research about you for this episode, I found that on LinkedIn, you have listed a three-year career break where you traveled the world, which is not something you often see in medicine and something I wish more doctors were doing. Tell me a bit about what you did in that time. Yeah, the reasons for dropping out, which I really did, I dropped out. So I had done five years in the teaching hospital as the junior doctor and then as a medical registrar, then professorial registrar, had gotten then had done the RACP, the College of Physician exams and gotten through. And it was a bit of a letdown after that because somehow I thought life would be, you know, after studying for so many years that life would be you know, different. I don't know how, or I didn't know how at that time, but it wasn't as exciting as I thought it was going to be. And I looked at the lives that consultants were leading at the time and it just didn't appeal to me all that much. So I thought, well, I'll just take a break and drop out and just go traveling for a bit. Colleagues said to me, you'll be back in three months. You'll be bored out of your mind. And that kind of basically extended to, it was actually two and a half years. The reasons for dropping out are complex. I won't go into that too much. I think it was largely from probably studying too hard, studying early for getting through the fellowship exams, neglecting my loved ones, a difficult family situation. But I travelled extensively, largely through the Greek islands, Europe, through Spain, and then across to California and where I was just backpacking and 
hitchhiking, something which at the time, that was just about the time of the Manson murders. So it was just starting to get a little bit hairy. And then from California all the way down to almost the tip of Tierra del Fuego there in Chile. During the time, I, I just tried to live incredibly cheaply because I was just living on savings, which I'd collected over the previous five years. And I tried wherever I was to blend into the local scene. If I could stay with families or with people who'd put me up, that was terrific. And just basically I walked a lot and just took in the scenes, learned Spanish. I could speak pretty well by the time and really was just free floating. It was pretty irresponsible. And I never, during my travels, queried, why am I doing this? What am I trying to prove here? Until the end, when I was on a ferry standing up for 22 hours on a crowded ferry in the south of Chile with my backpack and being jostled on a ferry on a rough crossing. And it finally said, George, what are you doing? Now, on my way down through Latin America, I had a letter. I'd received a letter from a close friend of mine. Dr. Julian Gold, who is the former director of the Albion Street Centre in Sydney, and he had scored a position at the US Centres for Disease Control and said to me, you must come and check this place out, you will love it. As we were colleagues at the teaching hospital, we used to often have discussions, oftentimes at parties, meaningful, deep discussions you can imagine where we lamented the lack of treatment options that were available at the time in medicine and also the fact that there wasn't much prevention practice and prevention just wasn't something that we really turned our mind to much. It was a faraway notion and there wasn't much preventive activity that was happening. Remember, this is in the 1970s, so this is, there were pterodactyls still flying around. Uh, he said, you must come and check this place out. It's very exciting. Six months after getting that letter, when I'd reached this point in Chile, I did make my way back to Atlanta where he was and hung out with Julian there, attended CDC. I used to sit at his desk there just as a like another chair as an observer. It created a bit of a panic there at CDC. Who is this outsider? What's he doing here? What happens if he falls in the stairway? all of those sort of occupational health and hygiene matters, work health safety things. And that was the end of my travels then because at CDC I was offered opportunity to take up a project. I'll get into that if you want to get into how I made my way into public health. Yeah, absolutely. What I love so far is that it feels like so many people just plan out their careers and they say they're at A, they want to get to B, how do they get there? And you've just not worried about it for two and a half years and found your way into something that you're passionate about, which is amazing. So yeah, I'd love to hear more about how you actually went from there into a career in public health. Yeah, sure. So as I said, there was the travels, which I guess was like clear your mind. And then I started, once I'd said, what are you doing? And then decided to get back into the world, the world of medicine, if you will, was a little bit of a crikey, how do you re-enter? So there were some tenuous moments there. There were some difficult moments where I wondered how I was going to re-enter medicine. But when I got to CDC, admittedly, just Joe Blow turns up with a backpack, a pair of jeans and T-shirts, sitting at the desk of his Australian mate there in the middle of 
CDC, which is a kind of international organization with people coming from all over the world, I was attending. They said, well, okay, we know who you are. Tell us a little bit about yourself. And so I did. And they said, it's okay. If you want to, if you want to stay here and attend sessions, that's okay. But would you like a project? Because I had done medicine, I'd done my physician training, I spoke a little bit of Spanish. They said, if you want a project, we can see if we can find a project for you. Meantime, I was attending seminars in the end of 1977. The smallpox was just announced as having been eradicated, and that was at CDC, and I attended the meeting where that was occurring. Subsequent meetings, they were starting to talk about Legionnaire's disease, toxic shock syndrome. All of these were new syndromes that were emerging. And here I was attending meetings where they were discussing the science leading up to the discovery of these new conditions. It was incredibly exciting. At the time when they offered the project, we were located in the Division of Reproductive Health and it was the Abortion Surveillance Branch. Now, in 1973, there was the Roe versus Wade Amendment, the Roe versus Wade case, which made legal medical abortions, it made them legal, basically, and protected so that women of all socioeconomic classes could have illegal-induced abortions. In 1976, there was what's called the Hyde Amendment, which cut off funding for poor women to have legal-induced abortions. And the question was does this have a public health impact? In other words, were poor women who couldn't afford to have a legal induced abortion seeking illegal abortions and thereby suffering the consequences, septic abortions and worse other complications? And the project I was offered was, could you devise a study to find out what poor women are doing? And I was left to my own devices, but I had the resources. I had a desk, I had a phone, and I had a computer so I could start to make contact with women's organizations, reproductive health organizations. And it was exciting for me. It was like social science, public health, a little bit of medicine thrown in. It was like convergence of all these things, and it turned me on. So in the end, I did a study down in Dallas. They gave me a per diem. I wasn't an employee. I was, a, if you like, a contractor out of the blue, was given a per diem, a federal agent car, and if you like, identification so I could go into abortion clinics at the US-Mexico border. There I went to Dallas and did a study which essentially showed that poor women were continuing to have legally induced abortions because they were somehow coming up with the funds. They were going without food or parents were helping them, boyfriends helping them or whatever but we couldn't find any evidence of any public health impact that we could find. In addition, when I came back and had shown interest and done this study, they said, we've got this large multi-center study and the person who is heading up that study wants to leave and go to another city. And so I was asked then to project manage a large multi-center study around 28 centers around the U.S., monitoring ED emergency departments to see if women were presenting with spontaneous abortions. Again, we couldn't find any evidence that there was a public health impact of this social funding cutoff, if you will. So that really turned me on to this sort of work. I thought this is really exciting. 
it was far more exciting than some of the ward work that I had done some years before, although you've got to remember now I'm, what was this now, several years from the time I was doing clinical work, but it was a turn on. Then an opportunity came up and I was accepted into the Epidemic Intelligence Service, which was at the time at Centers for Disease Control. This is a program where people who apply, and there were about six applications for every available job slot, and there was about 75 job slots on offer, and I applied and was successful in getting onto the program some months after I'd first appeared at CDC, and so I was on my way. In this program, you're given a three-week crash induction course into what's called Schuler, the Epidemiology, Frontline Epidemiology, Survey Methodology, some basic statistics, just how to go about managing an outbreak situation, and then you're thrown into it. Now, on this program, they have a matching index. So you then go to the various departments at CDC, and CDC at that time had offices in virtually every state of the US. They had international offices. And in headquarters in Atlanta, they had things like environmental health, cancer, gastrointestinal infectious diseases, respiratory diseases, protozoal disease, you name it. They had units which are doing public health research, but were also in the business of assisting states. If there was an outbreak of any condition, any type of any condition, they would offer assistance to the local state authorities in conducting outbreak investigation and control. So I was in that program and I chose to go to the Georgia Department of Family Health. And that time I was involved in doing epidemiologic studies of perinatal health and uh, reproductive health, if you will. So the safety of high-risk pregnancy programs, family planning programs, etc. It was an interesting environment because at that stage in the US, if you were a black woman and you were pregnant and you appeared at the hospital in labor, and you couldn't afford, you didn't have private health insurance and couldn't afford it, you were told you could go and deliver in the parking lot. It was that bad. So anyhow, that was the introduction to public health. Then after the EIS program, I was successful in getting on to, there was the preventive medicine residency program at CDC. And I then moved on to being a project officer on a very large case control study conducted in the US with some 12,000 women involved. And it was looking at hormonal therapy, oral contraceptives, estrogen replacement therapy, and female cancers, breast cancer, endometrial cancer, and ovarian cancer. It was at the time, and I think still is one of the largest, it was the largest case control study ever conducted. So it was a fantastic experience in project managing a huge study and also getting involved in all the analyses. It was easy because we didn't have to write grant proposals and we just had this huge data set and we could just analyze it out the wazoo and publish papers. It was cornucopia for public health, really. So that was really the intro to public health and how I veered off track of clinical medicine and travels and then at CDC and then CDC introduced me to the world of public health. When I was going through medicine in Sydney, public health was rats, drains, the life cycle of the malarial parasite. It was something that most people tried to avoid or skip to lectures. It was hardly exciting stuff, but at CDC, it was a different ballgame. And I'm pleased to say public health is a much, much far more interesting area these days than it was in those dark years. 
It's really interesting you say that because as you were talking, I was thinking this sounds so much more interesting than the impression that I got of public health in university, which wasn't quite as long ago. My memory is much more around statistics and not really understanding the significance of what we were learning about. But what you just described sounds so fascinating. I think hard to find someone in medicine that's not interested in all of those things you got to be involved in. Yeah, that was really where you could see how what you were doing related to the community, the social environment, and here was an important political decision. And the question was, what health implications did that political decision have? And how would you go about measuring it? And then, of course, then we'd get into what are you going to do about it when you find all those things out? In other words, how do you do something with your scientific findings? It's interesting because when I was involved with the cancer and steroid hormone study, this is in the preventive medicine residency years, I was cocky enough to say, because I'm doing radio interviews with some of the results of our study. So we had, for example, it was an issue at the time, what about young women or women who start oral contraceptives early in life, say around 16, 15 even, what does that mean for their breast cancer risk? And we had data on that and we were publishing data on that. And I was asked by an interviewer at the time, what are you doing about it? What's the implication of this for programs? And I was cocky enough to say, that's not our job. Our job is to basically provide the scientific data, if you will, provide the information for the program people then to work out the implications of it. And I've come to regret those statements, I've got to say, because I think once we do have some findings, it's important that we're able to carry that forward and take part in some sort of implementation. I'll talk about that later. Yeah, I'm sure you've changed a lot over the course of your career. How did you go from working in the US to coming back to Australia? Okay, so you mean from that CDC experience to coming back to Australia, the re-entry? Yeah, I mean, fill me in on any steps we've missed along the way. I was having a fabulous time in Atlanta. I married someone I'd met on my travels earlier on, an English lady. She came across, she hated the States. She didn't like the constant advertising, the focus on the dollars. Everything just reverberated around business and business opportunities and everything and she just hated it and said, can we leave? I don't want to live here anymore. And, of course, I was a bit resentful at first, and um, I was then working for the previous director of CDC on Task Force for Child Survival, which was set up in the Carter Centre in Atlanta after Jimmy Carter left the presidency and set up the Task Force for Child Survival in his Carter Centre. And my mentor at that stage, a superb public health professional, said to me, look, there's a job going in Bangladesh if you want to learn about development. And I thought, sounds interesting. I went home to my wife and said, how about Bangladesh? And <laughs> you can imagine the look I got. Anyhow, one thing led to another and I interviewed for the job and got offered a job in Bangladesh as a program officer in child survival, which was a fantastic opportunity. It was with the Ford Foundation. That was an organization that had a large endowment fund and it had to give away a proportion of its earnings each year for charitable causes around the world to maintain its tax-free status. That's the way it works in the US. And it had about a million dollars that 
were available for grants in Bangladesh in the area that I was working, which was maternal and child health. And my role as a program officer was to present a case to the president of the Ford Foundation based in New York as to why Ford Foundation should make a particular grant. And so I got to work with a lot of development organizations, particularly women's groups where they were pooling their resources to try and earn enough money to live and support their families. Remember, in Bangladesh, if you were divorced or discarded by your husband or partner at that stage, it was very difficult. You really only had two options, either to beg or to prostitute yourself. So incredibly trying times and incredibly poverty-stricken environments. So it was really challenging to work out how to best help these particular groups and how to make small grants that could leverage much larger grants from the bigger donors such as USAID or the European donors from Norway, Sweden and Holland particularly. So it was a fantastic experience for a couple of years where I'd learned about um, programs, program evaluation, assessing programs, and if you like, strategic grant making. Unfortunately, we had a family crisis and we were forced back to Sydney, where I hadn't lived for 13 years, forced back to Sydney because that's where my home base was prior to leaving on world travels, etc. We were forced back with pregnancy complications with my wife having a second child. And coming back, I was offered a position in New South Wales Health as the Director of Epidemiology and Health Services Evaluation. And I sought counsel from my esteemed colleagues um, around Sydney at the stage, particularly Professor Stephen Leader, who was Professor of Public Health and Community Medicine at University of Sydney, and he's an emeritus professor there now. He was very keen that I take up that position, and it sounded interesting, except I think there were one, two, three, about five people in it. There were three old-school public health physicians who basically sat in a in a room with telephones waiting for people to call in and say, I'm going to Bali, what vaccinations should I have? And some food inspectors who would go out and investigate ostensible foodborne outbreaks and a couple of clerical people, and that was it. So um, that was the epidemiology branch that I was stuck with at that time. Fortunately and very fortuitously, the secretary of what was then New South Wales Health, it was the Department of Health at that stage, said to me, look, this epidemiology stuff, how do you think we might spread it around the state? So over the weekend, I'd done a very rough two-page proposal, was pretty radical, and it basically suggested a rapid expansion of the epidemiology branch within the health department as a central capacity group modelled on the structure of the Centers for Disease Control in the US. Remember, CDC was international. It had extension into all states and also into WHO, and it had operations in many other countries around the world. And so on a very small scale, trying to have a central focus epidemiology branch with reproductive health, cancer, injury prevention, infectious disease, what am I missing out? I think that gives you pretty much of an idea. And importantly, public health units around the state. We then had what were called area health services at the time. There were 16 area health services around New South Wales. And so I said every area health service should have a public health unit. 
the public health unit should have this sort of configuration of people, an epidemiologist, a health promotion person, a food inspector, a data person, and an administrative person, something like that, about five people. Then we needed a training program to train up professionals to have the skills, if you will, to be able to deal with public health issues. But at the local level, remember, these area health services now, we call them local health districts now, but the area health services were much bigger than the local health districts. So you had local capacity to do public health and prevention stuff and a training program. We'll call it the Public Health Officer Training Program and a journal, which was like a a weekly or a monthly reporting mechanism on the occurrence of immunization, preventable diseases, other outbreaks that might be occurring around the state, akin to the WR, the Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report of the uh, CDC. Now, remember, all of this was very much coloured by my CDC experience, working both at the centre at CDC, working in the state health department, and being exposed to the whole CDC environment as it was pre-Trump era when it suffered the consequences of over-politicisation. That was my kind of entry then back into New South Wales, I guess, was so for six years I was trying to spend time building that public health infrastructure, which I'm pleased to say still exists more than 30 years later. And the public health officer training program still exists and it was copied in several other states around the country and it seems to be an attractive place for people interested in public health careers around the country. So I'm pleased to say that's something which has persisted. So I'm very pleased and basically proud of that evolution. A bit of a roundabout way back to Australia, but sounds phenomenal. It all sounds like completely different jobs as well, like very different requirements of you, but you've obviously drawn on your skills from each experience to move into the next thing. I want to get a bit of a sense of what it is that you're doing now. I know that's probably jumping a long way, so feel free to fill in a few of the gaps. Some might call it creative career. Other people might call it chaotic. We've done CDC. We did Bangladesh. We've done New South Wales Health. After epidemiology, I was fortunate enough to get the chief health officer role. That's the Kerry Chant role currently. And in that time, this is around the mid-90s, really, for four years around the mid-90s. And at that time, evidence-based medicine was evolving at the same time as we had systematic reviews, the Cochrane collaboration. These are all familiar terms, I'm presuming, with you, Elise. The rise of consumer input into the planning, development, and assessment of health services. And also, starting in with the development of systematic reviews, we had development of guidelines because guidelines were, if you will, an expression of a systematic review. You've got a systematic review. Here's what the evidence, we've got 20 studies, clinical trials, which are showing this, or a range of, if you like, observational studies and clinical trial data, which is showing that whatever it's showing. And then how do we turn that into something which is actionable in the healthcare setting, both public health and clinical practice? how to draw all these things together. Well, so at that stage, I tried to get a program up which was called the Health Outcomes Program. And the idea was this, that around any particular service, there should be a discussion about what are we trying to achieve with this particular service, be it a 
diabetes service, a breast cancer service, an epilepsy service, you name it. What health outcomes are we trying to achieve? What are the performance measures? How do we know if we're going to achieve those outcomes that we say are the desirable outcomes? And again, we've involved consumers in the discussion of what should be desirable outcomes. So you've got the performance measures then. Then the question is, what's the best way to achieve those performance measures? And the best thing we could come up with at the time was if you implement evidence-based guidelines, that's probably your best way of achieving the desired outcomes. It seemed fairly simple in concept, and I was able to get some $5 million a year to advance that program. So we started off that program. And so that was my first attempt at trying to bring together these, if you like, evolving trajectories, evidence-based medicine, guideline development, consumer involvement, right? And about the same time in mid-90s, so 1995, there was a Medical Journal of Australia article published by Ross Wilson and colleagues the results of which were announced in federal parliament by Carmen Lawrence, the then health minister, it was shock horror because it was announced in parliament before the publication arrived, which almost never happens in scientific work. You always have touch until the, the journal articles published. But it suggested that up to 18,000 people were dying in Australian hospitals as a direct result of the care they were receiving, not as a result of their disease. And it was suggesting that 16.7%, almost 17% of hospital admissions were suffering some sort of severe complication. This was horrifying. This was terrifying. And it created quite a ruckus, as you can imagine. So it was announced in Parliament, and immediately a task force was set up. And I was on that task force by virtue of being the Chief Health Officer in New South Wales. And that committee made recommendations for what should happen. There were a number of subsequent committees and reports that were developed, which ultimately led to the development of the Australian Commission for Safety and Quality in Healthcare. And then, of course, the Institute of Clinical Excellence in 2003, which then led to the Clinical Excellence Commission in New South Wales. So quality and safety in healthcare was becoming something center stage. It wasn't sort of a totally fringe issue as it had been up until that time. There was a lot of talk about quality, but there were all various understandings of what quality was. And there was all sorts of stuff, terrifying things that were going on in hospitals. Anyone who was around in the 70s and 80s in hospital practice would be aware of that. So terrible things were happening and something had to be done. That really takes us then to the setup of the creeping in this idea of clinical governance. Now, clinical governance, if you're not familiar with the term, is basically the mechanism by which a health organization, that could be a hospital, a local health district, a local health network, a general practice, the mechanism that organization has to make sure that the enterprise is achieving its objectives, and that there is continuous improvement, but most importantly, that the services delivered are safe and effective. About the same time, Brent James from Intermountain Healthcare in the US had come across, and he had developed a methodology which he called clinical practice improvement, which was applying 
quality improvement techniques that were developed for Toyota in the 60s to improve the manufacturing process for cars, because at that time, anything Japanese was basically tinny and pretty junky, to the point it is today where Japanese products are highly desirable and quite expensive, super expensive, certainly at the top end or the upper end of quality. And he'd worked out a way of applying this to clinical medicine to ensure continuous improvement in the safety and quality of the outcomes of clinical practice, if you will. And with Brent James, we started through the Department of Health to teach a course in clinical practice improvement. And this appealed to me and I got very involved with that program We developed a program, then we started teaching it in the Master of Medicine at the University of Sydney, involving the techniques that we'd learned from Brent James. And this caught on. We had people attending these week-long residential programs from all around the country. In fact, internationally, we had people from Hong Kong, Singapore, Indonesia, and the like. It was a very successful program, and it seemed relevant at the time. Now, since that time, there's been the development of clinical governance. You're all aware of it. You've now got national clinical standards, which are applied through every hospital, public and private throughout the country, where there's a requirement to have in place policies, procedures, and practices in place to, as best we can, ensure safe, relatively high-quality services, particularly in hospital settings, but this is also applying in the community health setting and in general practice as well. To a lesser extent, I'd have to say, it's taken a long time to move into general practice, but the same ideas obtain. So along with that, after being in the New South Wales Health Department, I then moved to the university and subsequently out to Westmead in a conjoint appointment with University of Sydney and Western Sydney and was involved in health services research, which is really trying to apply public health principles, if you will, to clinical situation to try and improve clinical services. And there's some examples of that were trying to improve the blood supply. So we've done studies of the safety of red cell transfusions and how to ensure safety of red cell transfusions, surgical treatments and scheduling of surgical procedures, studies looking at rapid response times and how to improve that. So it was very much applying public health principles to clinical situations. And then I got bored out there because I'd been out there for a decade and applied for a position on the southeast of Sydney. And there, the position I took up was Director of Population Health and Planning and Performance. But I was very quickly asked to set up clinical governance structures within the then southeastern Sydney, Illawarra, and subsequently southeastern Sydney. And that's occupied me pretty much up until about 2020. And in 2020, I semi-retired. I was hoping to retire, but I got headhunted to do some contractual work then. And that takes me up to where I am at the moment, which is with home affairs, setting up, interestingly enough, clinical governance structures within the Department of Home Affairs with their huge array of health services that they deliver to staff and to clients around the world and obviously in detention refugee centres around the country. But it's essentially to try and set up mechanisms applying public health principles, if you would like, to health services, but health services are both preventive and treatment health services. 
it all sounds so fascinating. I'm sure a lot of our listeners will feel similarly in that it sounds like you're working on things that are topical and interesting and happening now and you're making a huge impact on a huge scale. I still don't have the best sense of what working in public health looks like day to day, which I imagine is because it's quite different day to day. But can you give us a bit of an idea of what an actual day in your life looks like at the moment? Realising that I'm semi-retired now, being a geriatric, a day in my life now, it's taken up with a lot of things. And so you end up being quite busy and perhaps sometimes more active than I'd like to be. But I spend time with a family because, you know, we've got an expanding family. There's contract work. So I do about two or three days a week doing contract work, still for home affairs, working with a terrific young clinical team of young doctors and nurses, some of whom are very interested in public health and are pursuing higher qualifications in public health. So I do some mentoring there, which I do enjoy tremendously. I'm on a hospital board and so do some board work. The mentoring, as I said, but I like to try and keep fit, try and keep all the body parts working as best they can. That's something which I really enjoy doing. Obviously, home maintenance, gardening, reading, current affairs, keen for some volunteering work. And so I'm volunteering for some of the independent MPs that are pushing for some of the things I believe in. That would be um, something that I'd enjoy doing. But I think work-wise, for public health perspective at the moment, it's largely the contract work. And the contracting work, really is based on the experience I've been fortunate enough to have over the decades, really. You sound like a person that you encounter quite frequently in medicine that doesn't quite know how to sit still. Yeah, attention deficit disorder, I guess some variant of that, I guess that's probably a good way of describing it. You've definitely used it to your advantage, I would say, all the things you've done over the years. Well, it's been a rewarding and fulfilling career, I'd have to say. So I'm hoping that some of your listeners might be interested in pursuing a public health career. I think it's a very rewarding area. It's not remunerated as much as procedural work in medicine, of course, but I think far more intellectually challenging and providing some kind of exciting options, as we've seen with the COVID situation over the last several years. Do you have any advice for Australian medical students or junior doctors that are wanting to pursue a similar career? I'd say, importantly, to get as much exposure as you can to different, both clinical settings when you're doing your clinical work, but if there's any opportunity to get exposure to public health, try and get as much experience as you can in whatever public health area you can find a role for yourself. That's the first thing. Certainly do a Master of Public Health, either at any of the universities. have very good programs on offer now. I doubt that I'd even get through the program now fantastic programs. Get a mentor. It's extremely important that you do get a mentor. I'm always available to anyone who's interested. I think that's really important to help you sometimes make decisions when you're faced with several options, if you will. Work hard at everything that you do and do good work. That's important. Make sure you document your successes. If you're working on something that's important, Don't let it just go by. Make sure that you write it or you work with colleagues to publish the work. And I'm not saying that in a publish or perish situation. I'm just saying there's areas that I was involved with that I regret now that at the time I didn't sit down and write what was actually happening at the time. And so that's something which I'd recommend. Be a good team player and hopefully all the best in your aspirations. 
but certainly do seek a mentor. And I know there's a lot of public health professionals out there who will be only too happy to provide some commentary which you might find helpful. For our final question, we like to ask all of our people with creative careers what they would do if you didn't do something in medicine. Any other dream jobs? Yeah, I've got three, Elise. So the first one that sprang to mind as you posed that question was as a landscape gardener. I just love gardening and I love planning and outlining gardens. So a landscape gardener would be a terrific career, I would think. The second one was a travel writer because I love to travel and I had fabulous experiences as we talked about earlier on and writing about travel would be tremendous. I'm not sure how fulfilling a role it would be, but it would be great to have the opportunity to be able to travel and write. And the third one, uh, perhaps the most attractive and probably not that far a cry from my experience, so forgive me this one, but I'd love to be working in a large donor organization, very wealthy one for that matter, something like the Gates Foundation, administering grants or recommending grants in that are innovative and constructive and lead to major societal change, particularly in lesser developed countries. I think that would be a fabulously rewarding career and one that would be wonderful, but too late. Maybe not a far cry though, so maybe not too late. Thanks to that, Elise. <laughs> Thank you so much for being on the show. It was amazing to hear from you and I'm sure our listeners will think the same. Thanks very much, Elise. It was a pleasure to be with you. I hope it's helpful. Thanks for listening to the Creative Careers in Medicine podcast, a proud member of the Talking Health Tech podcast network. Visit the Creative Careers in Medicine website in the show notes of this episode for more resources to help you find the courage, confidence and skills to take control of your career and forge your own unique path. The Creative Careers in Medicine podcast acknowledges the traditional owners of country throughout Australia and recognises the continuing connection to lands, water and community. We pay our respects to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures and to elders past, present and emerging 